But more than anything else, I asked you to believe in each other again. To believe that gun ownership is as wholesome as it is constitutional. To believe that an NRA sticker on your windshield is a sign of pride. To believe that a kid who wants to plink at tin cans is not a kid gone wrong. To believe that the great flame of freedom our founding fathers ignited has not grown cold. I declare that mission accomplished. It seemed fitting to start off with the Charlton Heston clip, a man with a voice so deep and melodic that no matter how much I play with the garage band filters, I will never be able to match it in quality. Now, that specific soundbite comes from the 2000 National Rifle Association, or NRA, convention, and it makes a good starting point for the episode for a lot of reasons. For starters, guns, which are the topic for today, are a particularly divisive issue, and 2000 marks a year of unprecedented political, well, divisiveness in America. Newt Gingrich and the contract for America had been brewing hatred towards the Clinton administration and what they had termed liberal America for years now, and the 2000 election marked a chance for them to take back the White House. Both sides, Bush and Gore, used a fair amount of political hatred to rally up the party bases, and the election climaxed with what may go down as the most controversial Supreme Court case ever, Bush v. Gore. As people became more politically divided, issues like guns became, well, a more divisive issue, more of a liberal versus conservative issue. Consider that John F. Kennedy, only a few decades earlier, had been a lifetime member of the NRA, but was also seen as a champion of leftist causes. 2000 marks also the start of a period that, even to date, will see an unprecedented rise in mass shootings all across the nation, helping spark a heated debate all across America that, well, we'll break down a bit on this show. I'm Cole, and this is Political Theory. Few issues divide America like the right to bear arms and the extent to which it exists, and today we'll try and break that down a bit and understand the Second Amendment in both a historical and argumentative context. Now, the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution reads, quote, A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. So, I thought we'd start off today by talking about the history of the ownership of arms throughout society and the protection of individuals against the state then break down the gun control debate that still rages on here in the U.S. Things like whether or not guns effectively hold the state in check, their necessity, who to blame when shootings occur, and so on. Uh, The history of the right of the people to bear arms goes back, like most things in this podcast I'm discovering, to ancient Greece, where a divisive split in political philosophy was occurring. In fact, even before Republicans and Democrats, before Californians and Texans, before Northeast college grads and their Fox News-loving grandparents were arguing over the right to bear arms, Plato and Aristotle were. Aristotle, who was a student of Plato, believed that people should be properly armed, although he could have never pictured guns as the armament of choice. He would have been thinking about more Greek weaponry, like spears or swords. He says, quote, Both oligarch and tyrant mistrust the people, and therefore deprive them of arms, end quote. And in his book, uh, Politics, specifically in Book 7, Aristotle writes, quote, There must be arms, for the members of a community have need of them, and in their own hands too in order to maintain authority against disobedient subjects and against external assailants, end quote. Plato, however, feels that arms should be controlled by the government, or at least a peacekeeping force, and while the public should be trained on how to use them, they should not have access to them, which he details in his writing Laws. Now, we're going to fast forward to 1689, when the Bill of Rights Act is passed in England, which guarantees that Protestant citizenry can have, quote, arms for their defense suitable to their conditions as allowed by law, end quote. 
Since the time of Plato and Aristotle, however, a lot has changed, and when the Bill of Rights Act of uh, 1689 was being written, the writers wouldn't have been thinking about spears and swords, they would have been thinking about guns as the means of defending themselves. Uh, first developed in China, the upcoming centuries after 1689 will see some of the fastest escalation of gun technology and gunpowder ever, especially in the 19th and 20th century, when new arms innovations are driven by the necessity of war. But even before that, the Spanish and Portuguese used guns to conquer South and Central America and wage war on Amerindian people, where the French and English used guns to conquer North American territory and uh, force Native American peoples west. Pistols, muskets, rifles, bayonets, harquebuses, and plenty more are just some of the weaponry that were used. But when World War I comes along, self-loading rifles and Gatling guns find prominence on the world stage. World War II sees the mass production of assault rifles, which were first developed by the Germans and then by the rest of the world, and those obviously possessed a wider range and more power. And during World War II, uh, war on the American mainland seemed like a greater danger than ever before, and people found more comfort in their guns. One story goes that a Japanese admiral said years after VJ Day, quote, We did indeed know much about your preparedness. We knew that probably every second home in your country contained firearms. We knew that your country actually had state championships for private citizens shooting military rifles. We were not fools to set foot in such quicksand, end quote. And after World War II, especially in America, fears of a communist attack on the mainland, which were encouraged on by Joe McCarthy in light of, ever, in light of the ever-tense Cold War, caused many to purchase the assault rifles popularized during World War II out of fear. Since then, guns have become ever more integrated into our American culture, and it's hard to say why. My personal theory is how integrated into our past, our history it is. It feels like a critical part of our identity. People like George Washington and George Patton made their name on part of the American experience through murder and bloodshed with guns on the battlefield. Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett integrated themselves into American folklore through exploring the frontier with, get this, guns. And it's not just the cultural identity of gunmanship that's relatively unique to America. The freedom that Americans have when it comes to firearms is also fairly unique. Freedom House has a ranking for gun freedoms, and... See if you can spot the outlier from this list of gun freedoms. The lower the number, the more restrictions. Australia, 2.2. Japan, 1.5. The United Kingdom, 1.5. France, 4. Germany, 3.2. Canada, 3. The United States of America, 8. Did you catch it? Of course there's a variation by state within America, right? Hawaii gets a 2.8 on this scale, while Wyoming gets a 9.3. But overall, we get an 8, which is an astoundingly high number compared to many of the other developed countries on that list. Some, when they hear that number, will throw up it in their mouth and then go cry in the corner. And others will cheer and shout and tell you that Reagan lives on. And I thought, given the amount of stuff that's packed into the Second Amendment, we ought to jump right in and tell you why those two... I guess they're kind of stereotypes, but why those two ideologies exist and why those two kinds of people believe what they believe. Much like how when people debate school prayer, they'll both cite freedom of religion as their reasoning, and you can see the previous episode for uh, arguments on that. People on both sides of the gun aisle cite the safety of the people as their reasoning for supporting uh, gun laws or no gun laws. Uh, safety of the people is undeniably one of the critical goals of society and the government, right? Roman statesman Cicero says in the first century BC, quote, Salus populi suprema est lex, or the safety of the people is the highest law. And that means that governments have to decide whether or not giving people guns creates a more or less safe society. And let's start with the idea that it does, that giving people arms does create a more safe society. This is essentially the concept that civilian stopping civilians is the best way to ensure safety and the best way to stop crimes. An armed vigilante is more effective than the police, is what the argument goes, really. 
According to the American police beat, the average 911 response time is 10 minutes, uh, for police, that is. And the Bushmaster M4 carbine, like the one that was used in uh, the Sandy Hook shooting, can fire between 700 to 950 rounds a minute for a fully automatic rifle. And that means that, hypothetically, I'm really stressing the hypothetical here, 9,000 rounds could have been fired by the time the police arrive. And compare that to somebody at school, like a teacher or a parent with a gun who was on-site already and, well, could take out a shooter within seconds. There are plenty of cases of this happening. In 1997, Luke Womb went on a rampage at his high school, but didn't get far before Joel Murick, who was the assistant principal and a U.S. Army Reserve commander, detained him using a 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol. And if you want more stories, there are plenty more out there. You can Google New Life Church shooting, the Trolley Square shooting, and the New York Mills AT&T shooting for just a few examples of where uh, civilians with guns have stopped what could have been a potentially much worse shooting. Lastly, a 1998 study by economist John Lott found that the more guns in an area, statistically speaking, the less crime. And he published these findings in a book called, get this, More Guns, Less Crime. The book's accuracy is up for debate, but many people stand by it, and you can find plenty of information about the book online. Here's uh, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia defending the court's viewpoint that the, uh, Washington, D.C.'s handgun ban was, unscon- was unconstitutional, partially on the basis uh, that we walked through here. In the 2008 case, District of Columbia v. Heller. Finally, we come to our disposition of the case. The district's handgun ban and the trigger lock requirement, at least as applied to immediate self-defense, which is all that respondent asked for, violate the Second Amendment. The district's total ban on handgun possession in the home amounts to a prohibition of, of an entire class of arms that Americans overwhelmingly choose for the lawful purpose of self-defense. Under any of the standards of scrutiny the court has applied to enumerated constitutional rights, this prohibition, in the place where the need for lawful defense of self, family, and property is most acute, would fail constitutional muster. On the other hand, many people argue that there are few problems with the aforementioned argumentation. First off, if the long-term goal is to decrease violence, then many people argue really only doing the opposite. See. When you show the next generation of kids that the solution to all of our problems is guns and shooting, then the message will become that motto of uh, the generation. That sends a signal to kids that the way to deal with their problems is shooting each other, and it also means that when those kids who are raised in a culture where guns are the solution, well, when they become adults, they'll still have that worldview, and the United States risks evolving into a modern-day Wild West, with shootouts and duels becoming the answers to disagreements. Furthermore, a Harvard Injury Control Research Center study found a significant correlation between gun ownership and homicide rates. And a 2010 Stanford study found a similar correlation, but with aggravated assault and gun ownership. And these studies confirmed that when guns were around, people's mindsets changed to become more violent. Furthermore, when the risk of being shot is significantly increased, your need for defense increases. And people certainly would become overreactive to uh, incidences, fearing a need to preemptively strike in order to save themselves or their families. A jittery, terrified, and paranoid person, which is the mindset that, let's face it, is promoted when everyone is armed, combined with a bias, because racial and gender biases are still really prominent in the United States, and then handed a gun is not in any way a safe combination. It raises the risk for accidental or preemptive shootings. Uh, Accidental shootings are more common than they seem. Between 2005 and 2010, almost 4,000 people were accidentally killed by a gun. Put more guns onto the street and put them into the hands of people who are far from competently trained, because... Many people argue that, you know, people will be compelled to take guns up out of necessity in a culture where such a risk is raised, but certainly might not have the time or the money to train properly. 
then that risk of accidental death rises. And that's a lot of the argumentation behind the pro-gun control side. Trying to pinpoint statistics on whether or not guns do or don't make a difference is a bit like the uh, ending of Interstellar. No matter how much time you spend reading about it and thinking about it and trying to find answers to what's going on, you'll never understand it or be able to make sense of it all. The amount of competing studies and statistics are interpreted in so many different ways when it comes to gun, uh, gun numbers that it's virtually impossible to draw conclusive data. For instance, from 1994 to 2007, the FBI reported a consistent drop in mass shootings, which the FBI defines as four or more people killed on in an incident. And that was largely attributed to the federal assault weapons ban that was in place during the majority of that period. After the ban expired, shooting rates rose again from 2007 to 2012. So, many people argue that the assault weapons ban worked. On the other hand, while firearm ownership increased steadily uh, during that period, from 1993 to 2011, homicide rates decreased by 39%. And people point at loopholes and uh, try and make sense of all those facts. But I use those numbers to show that, you know, people can interpret um, data in very different ways. And that's what you find whenever you try to do research on gun controls. That, you know, there's no real consistent or clear uh, statistical or, I guess, uh, mathematical or scientific uh, viewpoint that's commonly held. Another issue that uh, gun ownership and gun control comes down to is whether or not guns are the best option for holding government in check and whether or not the risks outweigh the benefits. The reason that the Second Amendment exists is if government ever gets too abusive or begins to disregard the needs of the people, the people have tools to overthrow the government and start again. Thomas Jefferson in his papers wrote, quote, No free man shall ever be debarred the use of arms. The strongest reason for the people to retain the right to keep and bear arms is as a last resort, to protect themselves against tyranny and government, end quote. And many tyrannical leaders knew that in order to keep themselves in power and their people in check, they had to deprive them of arms. Adolf Hitler once said, quote, the most foolish mistake we could possibly make would be to permit the conquered Eastern peoples to have arms. History teaches us that all conquerors uh, who have allowed their subject races to carry arms have prepared their own downfall in doing so, end quote. The only way to ensure that no tyrants take power or no rights are infringed upon without consequence is to give people a tool to hold the government in check, and many say that allowing the citizenry to bear arms accomplishes that goal. Uh, but many people also argue that in protecting such a large liberty like that of freedom, we end up infringing on liberty of life, just on a smaller and more individualistic scale. When the Founding Fathers wrote about arms, they understood arms to mean rifle and, rifles and muskets, right? which could do damage, but required one, an individual and owning a gun would have had a significantly more time committing something like a murder, given that it took about 15 seconds in between every shot with a musket. And you can compare that to modern weaponry, where the right kind of uh, weapon can spray bullets endlessly. But secondly, and I think this is the more important difference uh, between arms then and now, the Founding Fathers gave us the right to bear arms so that we could revolt, bearing in mind that in order to do serious damage, it required a lot of people coming together for a single cause, which would imply that the cause, in this hypothetical, the cause is, I guess we could say, all-out rebellion. Well, that implied that the cause had value because it required a lot of people to come together, and that was keeping in line with democracy. Now, however, a single person with an ideology, uh, you know, it doesn't require a large movement. A single person with an ideology can do the damage that would have required mass mobilization of the uh, public coming together for a single cause, meaning that your cause doesn't have to be validated by the public. It only has to be validated by you and maybe a few like-minded people. It's also worth noting that peaceful rebellions and movements have historically worked before. The most famous one, of course, is in India, where Mahatma Gandhi led a peaceful result without guns or access to them. And Gandhi himself actually uh, once did say, though, quote, 
Among the many misdeeds of the British rule in India, history will look upon the act of depriving a whole nation of arms as the blackest, end quote. But uh, going back to the pro-gun control side, and political scientist Erica Chenoweth found that nonviolent campaigns from 1900 to 2006 had a success rate of over 50%, while violent campaigns during that period had a success rate of just over 20%. You can find her TED Talk on the matter, but statistics and studies like those uh, you know, have led many to argue that guns aren't as necessary for holding government accountable as they initially appear. Lastly, I want to talk about uh, where the blame ought to be placed in a shooting, whether it's on the shooter, the gun, or the bullet. Many people who argue in favor of gun rights argue that it's not the gun that needs to be dealt with, it's the people who are more likely to use the gun for the wrong purpose. Rather than taking away guns, we need to do things like increase background checks in case criminals want to get a gun. We need to require people to get a signature from their doctor to prove mental stability. Things like that. This idea of putting blame on the shooter and not the gun goes all the way back to ancient Rome when Seneca the Younger wrote, quote, A sword never kills anybody. It's a tool in the killer's hand. End quote. Now, many people say that the gun is unmistakably tied to the crime. If it weren't for the gun, then there would be no shootings. And even with elaborate regulations in place, people who don't meet the requirements can still get a hold of high-powered weaponry. Uh, Adam Lanza, who was the mentally ill Sandy Hook shooter, didn't pass a single background check, but he still managed to get a gun by using his mother's weaponry. And just a few days ago, we learned that the Charleston shooter uh, should not have technically been able to get his hands on a gun, but given the failure of our regulatory system, the FBI reported that he was still able to get the guns that he needed in order to commit the mass atrocities at the, uh, at the AME church shooting. Both of these are places where regulating the shooter would not have done any good, and the only hope we had for stopping the atrocities that were committed was regulating the guns. If we ban guns that serve no modern purpose, like assault rifles, from domestic youths by both civilians and police forces, then we can de-escalate the United States. Guns have a shelf life, and if we start now, then we have a country where, regardless of any bureaucratic slip-ups or loopholes, people won't have the tools for destruction. Many people who support this kind of ideology point to Australia, where a number of years ago there was a mass shooting and the government offered, I believe it was in exchange for tax credits. Both uh, they offered people to come in and turn in their guns. Over time, Australia has seen a drop in mass shootings and murders and homicides, while at the same time slowly increasing uh, the amount of gun regulations in place, as we saw with the statistics earlier, right? I believe it was Australia had a 2.2. Uh, you know, it's a great example of where de-escalation has worked as a policy. Finally, many people say that rather than placing significant blame on the people or the gun, blame should be placed on the bullets. And when we look to regulate things, we should look to regulate bullets and, uh, instead. The bullets are what make the gun dangerous, and an abundance of them are what gives the gun the ability and the capacity to do the kind of harm that mass shootings entail. If a gun only has one bullet, then an assault rifle can, hypothetically, kill no more people than a pistol or a rifle. And several times it's been proposed that the ammunition is what ought to be controlled, not the guns. Uh, thanks for listening, and I hope you'll tune in next time. You can email us your thoughts, comments, suggestions, observations, uh, ponderances, or whatever else to political theory podcast at gmail.com. And uh, I'm going to end the episode on an audio clip from Chris Rock on the very subject of regulating bullets. Uh, please turn in next time we talk about the Third Amendment, what the American Bar Association has once called the rent of the Constitution. Find out why next time. Uh, here's Chris Rock. You don't need no gun control. You know what you need? We need some bullet control. We need to make, we need to control the bullets. That's right. I think all bullets should cost five thousand dollars. Five thousand dollars for a bullet. You know why? Because if a bullet costs five thousand dollars, there'll be no more innocent bystanders. Yeah. 
like that, he must have did something. Shit, they put $50,000 worth of bullets in his ass. And people would think before they kill somebody if a bullet cost $5,000, man, I would blow your head off if I could afford it. I'm going to give me another job. I'm going to start saving some money. And you a dead man. You better hope I can't get no bullets on layaway. So even if you get shot by a straight bullet, you won't have to go to no doctor to get it taken out. Whoever shot you will take their bullet back. 